0: Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: And you did that after you had removed his
0: head? Yes, I did.
2: homicides relating to domestic violence. It's an aspect of true crime that we cover often on this show, and frankly, something that our team is passionate about. It's not a topic we necessarily seek out. If anything, the amount of murders we see at the hands of violent spouses or partners is simply a testament to how large and widespread the issue actually is as a whole. A big part of what we're trying to do with Invisible Choir aside from shedding light on these broader issues, is actually narrowing in, shining a light on the victims who may otherwise have been forgotten. We try to focus on the legacies of those who weren't given the appropriate attention that their cases deserve. Some of the edgier podcasts out there might call that being social justice warriors. We simply call it being decent human beings. There's a lot of victims who go unseen in this space, That's one of the reasons why bigger true crime networks don't cover many of these smaller cases. Sadly, it's often because they're not, quote, marketable enough, which is a gross concept in and of itself. But other times, it might not be for the reasons we'd think. When a crime is actually far too vicious to be palatable for a mass audience. In some cases, not even Netflix will pick up the story. And what happened back in 2020 in a picturesque northern New England town is precisely where one such case took place. Keene, New Hampshire. If you've never heard of it, the locals would be appreciative of that fact. It's actually a fairly popular destination, but not yet overrun with entitled tourists and annoying weekenders. It's a quaint historical town that sits just below some of the even quieter White Mountain villages. If you're in Keene, you're equal distance from Boston as you are to some of the best ski resorts the region has to offer. There's a relatively active downtown area that's home to a college and a university. But other than that, there isn't much that goes on here. However, we'd be remiss not to inform you that the movie Jumanji starring Robin Williams was in fact filmed here. But with all of the fun Snapple facts now out of the way, there's one person who lived in Keene who must be introduced early on in this story. His name is Jonathan Amarald. Jonathan was born in Rangeley, Maine, before moving to Milford, New Hampshire with his parents. Like most kids who grew up around the mountains, he enjoyed hiking, snowmobiling, and riding ATVs with his friends. He was a pretty exemplary teenager and never got into trouble. Quite opposite, in fact. He was the captain of the track team at Milford High School and volunteered his time often, so much so that he'd received the White House Youth Volunteer of the Year Award by President Bush and, once again, by President Obama. He then went on to further his education at Rochester Institute of Technology in upstate New York, where he earned a bachelor's degree in biomedical engineering. After college, Jonathan gained employment at a company called Teleflex, medical supply facility in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. He worked his way up the ranks at Teleflex and was excited to actually be utilizing his degree. After only a few years, Jonathan had already become one of the most valued engineers at the company and eventually purchased his first home and was in the process of remodeling it himself. He was described as responsible, someone who cared about his job. By all accounts, he had many people in his life who loved him. when his mother, whom he was very close with, hadn't heard from Jonathan in a few days, she became extremely worried. The last time she heard from her son was on Saturday, September 19th, 2020. And when Monday rolled around the following week, just a few days later, and still no word from her 25-year-old son, Jonathan, his mother decided to call his employer. The folks at Teleflex informed his mother that he had never showed up for work that day, explaining that no one had heard from Jonathan and that he hadn't called in sick. This was very out of character. John wasn't the type of guy to just not show up at the office without at least giving someone a heads up. At this point, his mother knew something was wrong, so she immediately got on the phone with the Keene Police Department and filed a missing persons report. That same day on September 21st, authorities conducted a welfare check at Jonathan's home. No one appeared to be present in the residence and his gray Subaru Impreza wasn't in the driveway. Investigators then visited his place of work at Teleflex, where his employer told authorities the same thing they had just shared with his mother on the phone, that John never made it to work that day. But something else raised some red flags during their visit. After talking with Jonathan's boss and fellow peers, it was revealed that another employee from the company hadn't shown up for work that morning either. 31-year-old Brittany Barone. Unlike Jonathan, Brittany did call out that morning. She phoned the office as soon as they opened to say that she wouldn't be coming in. Not that day or ever again. Brittany unexpectedly quit her job over the phone and hung up. And after asking a few more questions, investigators learned that Jonathan and Brittany did in fact have a close relationship on the job. It's unclear if anyone had reported Brittany missing by this point, but there seemed to be a connection between both of their sudden absences, at the very least. Authorities knew if they could find one, they might find the other, as the circumstances surrounding their whereabouts were simply too strange to ignore. Authorities had already spoken with Jonathan Amaral's family, so the next step was to contact Brittany's. After arriving at her residence at 63 Main Street in the town of Jaffrey, Brittany's mother-in-law answered the door. She told law enforcement that Brittany and her son, Armando Barone, were both up north hiking and that she was watching over their three children while they were away. For reference, this house was a duplex, two units separated only by a shared doorway. Armando's mother and his stepdad occupied one side of the unit, while Brittany and her husband Armando and their three daughters occupied the other. Not long after, law enforcement would thank Brittany's mother-in-law and then leave the property. But of course, as they often do, authorities wished to speak with the husband. So a few hours later, they came back to the residence just in case he had happened to show up. Just before 10.30 p.m., authorities returned to 63 Main Street to find Brittany's husband's Jeep Patriot was in fact parked in the driveway. It was at this time they made contact with 30-year-old Armando Barone. Authorities came right out and asked if he knew where his wife was. Armando told them that he had last seen Brittany early Sunday morning at around 2 a.m. just the day before. He said he dropped her off on the side of the road in Temple, New Hampshire, approximately 10 miles east of their home. Armando explained that his wife was going camping with some friends, and that the last time he actually communicated with her was via text message that same morning at around 7 a.m. Then, oddly enough, and unprompted by authorities, he went on to confess that the status of his marriage was not well. Things were rocky, he claimed. It's unclear if Armando meant that Brittany was being picked up on the side of the road by friends, but he seemed nervous. And frankly, two o'clock in the morning is a pretty strange time to arrange a meet-up for a trip into the woods. Very strange indeed but what he told authorities next gave them even more reason to be concerned. Armando then went on to say that after he dropped his wife off on the side of the road, he then drove north to the town of Errol, New Hampshire to clear his head. He said that with the ongoing marital troubles, he didn't want to go home to their children right away, explaining that he just needed some time to think. Fair enough. Taking a drive to get your mind off things for a while, most of us have done it. But have you ever taken a 3 hour and 38 minute drive one way at 2 o'clock in the morning just to get there and immediately turn around and come back? Because that's how far Errol, New Hampshire was from Jaffrey. That's exactly what Armando Barone claimed to police that he did. Also, it's worth noting here that there is virtually nothing in the town of Errol. Literally almost nothing and no one. According to a 2018 census, 264 people live there, and it sits just 30 miles from the Canadian border. It's an extremely remote area, and to put things into perspective, people drive snowmobiles here more than they do cars. Authorities soon wrapped up their interaction with Armando Barone, unfortunately not gaining much more information. But this encounter raised some eyebrows for more than a few reasons. As their investigation into the whereabouts of Armando's wife, Brittany, progressed, they also continued investigating Jonathan Amaralt's mysterious disappearance. And eventually, the two investigations would converge, and the evidence suggesting the connection would reveal a tragedy of epic proportions.
3: State police looking for a missing 25 year old man from Keene. Police say that Jonathan Amaralt was reported missing after he failed to show up for work in Jaffrey. His family hasn't heard from him since Saturday. He may be driving a gray Subaru Impreza with New Hampshire plates. Anyone with information asked to contact state police.
2: This episode is proudly brought to you by Squarespace. All right, guys, I've been using Squarespace for many years now to build a variety of different websites, including invisiblechoir.com. It is an all-in-one web design and personal branding platform that helps you bring a beautiful, responsive website to your customers or listeners. And the best part is, you don't need any web design or coding background. They have a drag and drop functionality and lots of cool features built in. I absolutely love it, and it's all I use for web design because it's so easy to use. Anyone could do it. For InvisibleChoir.com, we use Squarespace's member areas, which allows you to create the premium gated content for members. We also use their blog function to build out resource pages for each and every single podcast episode. We also use their analytic tool, which is super powerful and allows you to create a targeted marketing plan and find a way to most effectively engage your visitors. So if you want to give it a try, head on over to squarespace.com slash choir for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code choir to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash choir. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Rocket Money. Okay, so we're probably all guilty of this at one point or another. We see the banner. It says, try it free for 30 days. We sign up, we try it out, and then we forget about it. In fact, over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about, like that streaming service you bought just to watch that one new show. I know I'm guilty of it. In fact, after signing up for Rocket Money, I didn't even realize I had 16 active subscriptions. Rocket Money, formerly known as True Bill, is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. I love it because not only was I able to actually cancel some of those unused subscriptions right from in the Rocket Money app, I was also able to negotiate a one-time credit to my internet service bill. Another function of Rocket Money that I absolutely love is that anytime there's an abnormal or uncharacteristically large charge to one of my accounts, the app notifies me immediately. So stop throwing your money away, cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash invisible. That's rocketmoney.com slash invisible rocketmoney.com slash invisible. It had been roughly three days since anyone had last seen both 25-year-old Jonathan Amaral or the 31-year-old mother of three, Brittany Barone. By now, members of the Keene Police Department had spoken with one of Brittany's close friends. This individual was able to produce screenshots of a text message exchange between her and Brittany that took place on Sunday, September 20th, into the early hours of Monday, the 21st. The messages from Brittany mentioned that she was quitting her job. She apparently told her friend that she was moving to New Mexico, where her sister lived. In addition, Brittany went on to say in the messages that she needed space from her husband, Armando. And when the friend asked where Brittany was at at that time, she wouldn't say. And the message went unanswered. Eventually, phone records from both missing parties were subpoenaed and came back to New Hampshire State Police. Authorities were then able to trace the exact movements of each individual in the hours leading up to their respective disappearances. According to Jonathan's coordinates, his device placed him near his home in Keene, New Hampshire, on Saturday, September 19th. This was until approximately 11.15 p.m. At that time, his location suddenly changed. Jonathan's phone proceeded to move 17 miles southeast, where it would next ping in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, at around 11.30 Jaffrey, as we already know, is where Jonathan and Brittany both worked, but also the same town where Brittany and her husband Armando lived. After analyzing Brittany Barone's movements, they could see that her phone pinged in Temple, New Hampshire, like her husband had said, but she wasn't there Sunday at 2 o'clock in the morning as he had originally told investigators. Instead, Brittany's phone pinged in Temple at 9.45pm on Saturday, which left a pretty significant discrepancy in time. Britney's phone would next ping some 10 miles away in Jaffrey at around 10 p.m. on Saturday, where her location wouldn't change again until early Sunday, September 20th, at approximately 3.30 in the morning. It was during these early morning hours when investigators discovered a pattern. Both Jonathan and Britney's phones began moving toward one another and eventually in unison. Records indicated that the two missing persons were in close proximity to one another, on Saturday, September 19, 2020, from approximately 11.40pm to 1.53am, lasting a period of roughly two hours. However, Jonathan's device stopped connecting to all cell phone towers shortly after this, and his location never moved from Jaffrey. When Jonathan's phone went dark, Brittany's then began moving north, just past 3.30am on Sunday. Her device pinged a few hours later in Errol, New Hampshire at around 7 a.m. Again, Errol is some 195 miles north of Jaffrey, the same town that Brittany's husband told investigators that he drove to alone, neglecting to mention that his wife was with him. Brittany's phone then proceeded to show minor movement in the hours that followed, before pinging for the last time at 5.55 p.m. on Monday, September 21st, the last ping connecting to a cell phone tower in Errol, New Hampshire. So let's back up a minute. For starters, Jonathan and Brittany had a close relationship at work, and both coincidentally went missing around the very same time. And both were in the Jaffrey area together for at least two hours into early Sunday morning. Also, according to Jonathan's phone, he never left Jaffrey, Brittany, on the other hand, did, and apparently traveled far north to Errol. We also know that Armando Barone, Brittany's husband, wasn't telling the truth. He said that he and he alone went to Errol, told investigators that Brittany was elsewhere camping in the woods in Temple. But from those phone records, it was evident that the information Armando Barone provided to police was misleading and false. But before law enforcement could even begin scouring the exact area of Jaffrey, looking for Jonathan, or arrange to coordinate a search to find Brittany some four hours north in Errol, a tip came in. A tip that had been stumbled upon by accident, deep within the vast New Hampshire forest, up north. The morning of Sunday, September 20th, 2020, A group of three bear hunters were camping in Atkinson and Gilmanton Academy Grant, an area 23 miles north of Errol. This particular region is New Hampshire's northernmost point. Being that the area is so remote, one of the hunters was surprised when he saw two vehicles drive past the hunting grounds. As the bear hunter was walking up the desolate logging road, he made contact with a man driving a Jeep Patriot. The hunter told the man it was an area with active bear traps and that it wasn't safe. The driver mumbled, nodded his head, and the two cars proceeded along their way in tandem. The next morning on Monday, September 21st, the hunters noticed that the occupants of both vehicles had never left and had instead set up camp not far from their bait spot. They became frustrated that the campers were unlawfully encroaching on their space, as this was an area where no overnight camping was permitted. Later on that evening, the hunters drove their truck the short distance up the road to confront them. When they arrived at the clearing, they couldn't see any vehicles present. But there was a tent visible, some camping chairs, and a shovel, but it didn't appear as though anyone were actually there. The following morning at 8 o'clock on Tuesday, September 22nd, the bear hunters drove back to the illegal campsite once again. After laying on the horn this time, a woman finally exited from the tent. She was wearing large, dark sunglasses. The hunters reiterated to the woman that she wasn't allowed to camp there, and explained that she was trespassing. She didn't say much in response. In fact, she was quiet, apologetic, and the hunters left soon after. Thoroughly fed up by this point, the crew of sportsmen decided to drive into town to report the woman in the woods. Two New Hampshire Fish and Game officers eventually responded and located the camp about a quarter mile off the logging road. Her tent had been moved further back into the woods by this point, by about 100 yards. As the officers approached, they heard a dog barking in the distance. That noise was followed by a woman's voice trying to quiet the animal. As officers walked a little closer, a person emerged from the woods. They noticed that the woman who appeared to have been there for several days had a handgun strapped to her waist. They then noticed a large object covered by a brown tarp just to the left of her. There was debris and sticks that looked to have been placed on top of that tarp as well. As authorities engaged with the camper, they reinforced that she needed to pack it up and leave. Upon engaging with the woman, officers could also see that she had suffered significant injuries to her face. She was no longer wearing the sunglasses and she had been caught off guard by their arrival. The woman had two obvious black eyes and her left was completely bloodshot. When officers asked what happened to her, she said she'd gotten into a physical altercation with a friend that reassured them that everything was fine. At first, they weren't sure what to make of the situation. Here was a woman alone in the woods, yet polite, cooperative, and hadn't appeared to have done anything other than camp illegally and she was willing to leave. The two officers then offered to help the woman, volunteering to head back into town to get a pet carrier for her dog. When they were about to get into their police cruiser and leave, though, they heard the woman say something under her breath. Something to the effect of,
0: I'm in big trouble.
2: When Fish and Game officers returned to the site with the dog carrier, they noticed there were now deep drag marks in the mud leading into the woods. Impressions that hadn't been there before. Curiously, the officers decided to follow the new tracks. Off in the distance, they could see an object through the trees. They couldn't make out what it was, but it appeared to be something wrapped in a blue tarp that was laying partially submerged in a small creek. Of all things, it was in the shape of a human body. Before investigating the suspicious finding any further, they decided to check out the other large tarp, the brown one they saw earlier that morning that looked to be covering something else up. They began removing several branches and lifted back the plastic. Underneath was a gray Subaru Impreza that had been partially obscured and camouflaged by branches and leaves. The license plate of that car was subsequently run through the police database, and the tags came back belonging to Jonathan Amaral the missing 25-year-old man from Keene. New Hampshire State Police were promptly notified and arrived on scene shortly thereafter. Immediately upon arriving, a state trooper was informed by Fish and Game about the other tarp there in the woods. They said they hadn't yet touched it, but it didn't look good. As the officer followed the marks in the mud back down to the wooded area, he soon arrived at the object in question there in the creek he knelt down and noticed a dark red substance pouring from beneath the plastic tarp and dripping directly into the brook water. At some point during their search of the campsite, the woman occupying the tent was detained. Homicide detectives were soon brought in to secure the scene alongside the state's medical examiner, and upon a more thorough examination after pulling back the tarp, human remains were discovered. According to the preliminary report, the remains belonged to a male victim. But the identification didn't come as easily as one might think. That's because the first thing they noticed after unwrapping the tarp was that the head was missing. The body had been crudely wrapped in a moving blanket and then an outer layer of tarp. The medical examiner noticed what appeared to be knife marks on the victim's left wrist. There were also injuries to the victim's hands consistent with defensive wounds. Detectives returned back to the partially concealed Subaru on the other side of the camp and noticed a chair in the back seat. It was covered in dark reddish-brown stains that appeared to be blood. And on the tailgate and trunk area of the car, a more significant amount of blood was located. It wouldn't be long before the remains were positively identified as the owner of that Subaru Impreza, one Jonathan Amaral. At some point before the camp dweller was taken into custody, she did identify herself to authorities. They quickly learned that this was the other missing person from New Hampshire, 31-year-old Brittany Barone. After conducting a thorough search of the grounds, investigators also came across a white trash bag with bloody clothing. They also found a revolver inside of a gray and maroon backpack. There were three spent shell casings and two live rounds of ammunition still in the chamber. But there were also several other items of evidentiary value that were discovered, including a machete, hacksaw, and a small knife, all of which appeared to be covered in visible bloodstains. After the gruesome discovery of Jonathan Amaralt's remains, some four hours north of his residence in Keene, Brittany Barone was brought to the hospital and treated for her injuries, She was then released that same day and transported to the Berlin Police Department, about a two-hour drive south from the camp where Jonathan's body was discovered. Brittany was interviewed by the New Hampshire Crime Scene Investigation Unit, and she gave her full account of the events that led her deep into the woods that day, details that were nothing short of horrifying. According to her confession, Brittany's husband Armando had been going through her phone on Saturday, September 19th. At the time, she was wearing a bathrobe and was about to get into the shower. Just then, from the other room, Armando discovered a Snapchat conversation between his wife and her co-worker, Jonathan Amaral. It became clear right away to Armando that the two had been corresponding frequently. Brittany had previously changed the settings on her Snapchat to where the conversations would delete after 24 hours. By default, the app would normally erase all of the messages immediately after they're opened and read by the recipient personal privacy measure that she surely regrets altering. By changing this setting, her husband Armando was able to read several messages before they vanished from her device. Enraged by what he was reading, he confronted her and entered the bathroom. Armando grabbed Brittany by the neck and slammed her to the tile floor. He then began choking her, letting go momentarily before forcing his hands back down upon her throat once again. He continued to do this until eventually yelling out to their children. Armando instructed his daughters to run over to Grandma's house next door. Once he was sure they were gone, he dragged his wife into their bedroom. There he shoved Brittany to the mattress and began beating her with his closed fists. Armando punched Brittany countless times. Blood started pouring from her nose and both eyes eventually began swelling, making it difficult to see. She begged Armando to stop. But instead, he retrieved a handgun and forced the barrel into her mouth. Brittany's front tooth was chipped at some point during the attack. As Armando held the gun with one hand, he continued choking Brittany with the other. In that moment, he told his wife, You know you're going to die tonight, right? Brittany nodded her head. She knew. During her interview, she told detectives she could barely breathe and at one point lost consciousness from being strangled. Armando would let go and then continue choking her again. He did this repeatedly. At one point, though, he finally let go for good. Still held at gunpoint, Brittany was told to get dressed. Armando said they were going to take a drive. He then told his wife not to do anything stupid or their daughters were going to see something, quote, fucking gruesome. Armando then opened the side door that connected their residence to the in-law portion of the home where his mother lived. When it swung open, their oldest daughter was standing in the doorway. She could see that her mother was badly beaten. The daughter's eyes widened. Brittany tried to mouth non-verbally for her to run and get help. Armando quickly yelled to his mother, informing her that they were leaving and that they'd be back soon. He then slammed the door, forced Brittany outside into the passenger side of the Jeep, and took off down the open road. This episode is proudly brought to you by HelloFresh. Has anyone else noticed lately how many empty shelves there are at the grocery store? Yeah, me too. That's why I use HelloFresh for my family. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, delivering farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes right to your front door. No lines, no hassle, just great tasting meals you can whip up and enjoy in the comfort of your own home. Oh yeah, and no empty shelves. One thing I love about HelloFresh is the sheer variety. They have 40 weekly recipes to choose from for all meal occasions, lifestyles, and preferences. Take your pick from meals like soy-glazed salmon with rice or mushroom and chive risotto. Or my absolute favorite, the Italian chicken over lemony spaghetti. So good. What are you waiting for? To skip the lines at the store, go to HelloFresh.com slash Invisible60 and use code Invisible60 for 60% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Invisible60 and use code Invisible60 for 60% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The two began driving around. Armando was still in a violent rage when he began loudly reading off the text conversation between Brittany and Jonathan he began questioning her about her new relationship. With every message Armando read, he struck Brittany with his right fist. One message that triggered Armando specifically was the following, sent just a few hours earlier by Jonathan via Snapchat. Maybe we can take the girls to the park if they can keep a secret. Armando screamed out. You're having the girls keep secrets from me? With his left hand still on the steering wheel, Armando swung his free fist again wildly. With Brittany's phone still in his hand, he struck her again directly in the face, causing her nose to bleed for a second time. Armando eventually pulled into Annette Wayside Park in Ringe, New Hampshire, a secluded state forest bordering the town of Jaffrey. There were no lights at the park, just complete darkness. They arrived just before midnight, boiling over at the perceived love affair that his wife was having with another man from work, Armando turned to Brittany and said something to the effect of, We're going to message your little boyfriend. Using his wife's phone, he then began typing to Jonathan via Snapchat. Posing as his wife Brittany, he then told Jonathan he wanted to meet up at the park. Brittany prayed silently that Jonathan wouldn't answer and that maybe he was asleep. Sadly, he was not. Brittany could see from the corner of her eye that notification come in. Jonathan not only responded, but expressed that he was on his way. Armando then proceeded to back the Jeep into a narrow maintenance road recessed off the park's main entrance. He then exited the vehicle and ordered Brittany into the driver's seat. And not long after, Jonathan's headlights were seen approaching. He then pulled in and slowly circled the lot a few times. Jonathan then called Brittany's phone, trying to locate her in the pitch blackness. Brittany's phone was still in Armando's possession. It started ringing, and he immediately noticed an incoming call from Sherry. Armando knew it was Jonathan calling, and that his wife had disguised his contact information. Armando became even more enraged by the disguised contact information. One more lie, he thought. Who's Sherry, and why would she be calling you at midnight? He scolded Brittany from the bushes just a few feet away from the Jeep. Armando let the call go to voicemail, while Jonathan was still looking for Brittany, as it was so dark. Armando then instructed Brittany to flash the headlights so that Jonathan would see. Brittany complied, and after doing so, Jonathan pulled toward the jeep. He then got out of his vehicle and immediately noticed Brittany's bruised and bloodied face as he approached the jeep. Just then, he was ambushed by Brittany's deranged husband, Armando. From the shadows, Armando sprung toward Jonathan He asked what he was doing there and if he was trying to fuck his wife. Before John could even answer, he was rocked in the face by Armando's fist. He fell to the ground and Armando began kicking him unrelentingly. At some point, Armando pulled out the revolver, the very same gun he chipped his wife's tooth with back at their house. Brittany then ran from the jeep and begged Armando to stop, but he wouldn't. He began violently stopping Jonathan's skull while he was laying there in the dirt leaving visible impressions of a Nike-Cortez sneaker on the right side of the man's face. Armando then handed Brittany the weapon and told her to kill Jonathan. Brittany cried and pleaded, but it was no use. They were miles away from any help. Armando forced Brittany's hand to the grip of the firearm, holding his hands tightly on top of hers. She resisted, refusing to shoot. Armando then took the gun back and ordered his wife to step on Jonathan's neck. He instructed her to kill him this way instead, and Brittany reluctantly put her foot on Jonathan's throat, but didn't apply pressure. After yelling at his wife for taking far too long, Armando removed one of the laces from his own sneaker. He then handed it to Brittany and told her to strangle John to death, but she simply couldn't. Armando's frustration was nearing its peak. He then pointed the gun down at Jonathan and told him to get up and into the back of his Subaru. Incapacitated, he managed to limp to the back of his car. He then climbed in through the trunk area of his hatchback and laid down with his head facing the taillights. Armando pointed the gun at his wife while handing her a small blade. He ordered her to slit Jonathan's wrists. Afraid for her own life this time, she complied. But once again, she couldn't bring herself to kill him. Jonathan suffered superficial wounds from the blade while Brittany tearfully dragged the knife across John's skin, he whispered out to her. He told Brittany that there was a machete on the floor of the Subaru. He said to grab it and to kill Armando. She cried quietly as she told Jonathan that she could not, saying that if she tried, they were both going to be killed. Armando then came from around the car, ordering his wife to get into the driver's seat of John's Subaru while he entered the passenger side once again pointed the gun toward Jonathan, who was barely moving in the back of his own car with his feet positioned toward the dashboard. Now badly beaten, Jonathan uttered a few last words, begging for forgiveness. He said that he was sorry, promising to never speak with Brittany again. At one point in the car, Armando apparently told Jonathan that he was going to let him live, but he laughed wildly as he continued holding the gun to him. Armando made mention of his five-shot revolver, smirking as he explained how ironic it was that this specific type of pistol, capable of holding two different large-caliber rounds, was called the Judge. He toyed with Jonathan, implying to the man that today was his Judgment Day. With the revolver aimed at his head from the front seat, he made Jonathan sit up. He then told him to look at Brittany, asking him if he still thought she was pretty.
0: John looked at me. He said, yeah, I do.
2: After John said yes, Armando apparently replied with, You're right. She's fucking beautiful. According to Brittany Barone's statements to police during her interview, Jonathan's last words were quoted as, I thought you were going to let me live. To which Armando Barone replied, Well, I guess that makes both of us liars. Armando then fired three shots toward the back seat all of them striking Jonathan's helpless body. He was hit once in the hip, then once in the head. John instinctively threw his hands up in self-defense, and the final bullet tore through his arm before penetrating his skull for a second time. Brittany said the first two shots were 9mm bullets. The third was a slightly larger 45 caliber round. After Armando Barone thought he'd effectively killed Jonathan, he joked aloud to his wife, exclaiming that the final 45 caliber round surprised him, as he was unaware that particular caliber was in the chamber. Brittany continued by telling detectives what happened after the shooting. She said Armando concealed the murder weapon in a backpack and then handed it to her. He then instructed her to go back to their residence in Jaffrey to quote, Pack for camping. Brittany listened and drove Jonathan's Subaru back to the home with his body still in the back seat. Armando followed her in the Jeep. On the way there, Brittany heard Jonathan moaning from the back of the car. He was apparently still alive. After arriving back at their home, together they gathered camping gear, various other supplies, and their pet dog before leaving the residence once again, with Brittany in the Subaru and Armando trailing close behind in the Jeep. Armando stopped for gas in Jaffrey, where he ordered Brittany to park slightly down the road, ordering her to drive north toward Errol after she saw him pull out. They then both proceeded on their four-hour trip up north toward the remote New Hampshire woods. Eventually, Brittany noticed that Jonathan had stopped making noises from the back seat. On the long trek there, Armando called Brittany on the phone. He told her that when the sun came up the next morning, he would forgive her for being unfaithful. He also told her that he was still in love with her. Once they finally arrived in Errol, they stopped at a general store for more supplies. Brittany was again ordered to stay put in the Subaru, while Armando went in to purchase two tarps, some lighter fluid, cleaning supplies, and a shovel. After the stop, they once again continued on, traveling even further north. Eventually, they would drive past the bear hunters on Sunday morning and arrive at a remote clearing. When they got there, Armando took the keys from Brittany and jumped into the Subaru. He stepped on the gas and rammed the hatchback as far out into the woods as it would go in an effort to conceal the vehicle. Armando then made Brittany scrub the inside of the car to eliminate any and all fingerprints. He also ordered her to gather Jonathan's wallet and any identification she could find of the victim before tossing the items in a makeshift burn pit. Armando then took Brittany's own debit cards and cash, assuring her that she wouldn't be needing it. The two then covered the Subaru together with the brown tarp, rocks, and branches. They then unloaded their personal belongings from the Jeep and set up a single camping tent. The primary question during this portion of Brittany's interview was what had occurred in regards to the eventual decapitation. She confessed to authorities that her husband Armando demanded she remove the head so Jonathan couldn't be identified through dental records. Brittany then reported that while in fear for her own life and via the direct order of her husband Armando Barone, she pulled at Jonathan's body through the back seat of the Subaru to the hatch area and using the trunk as a makeshift workbench, she laid his head over the rear bumper and outside of the car. She then began using a saw to cut away at Jonathan Amaranth's neck. Armando stood just over her shoulder to watch the entire process. In addition to the saw, Brittany said she used a smaller blade to finish the job. After the gruesome task was completed, Armando dug a hole. Brittany wrapped Jonathan's head in plastic, placed it into a shallow grave, and covered it with soil. Armando told Brittany to make additional dismemberments to the body, but... She refused. At one point, Armando left the camp temporarily to purchase groceries and a stronger shovel. He traveled in the jeep roughly 40 miles southeast to an IGA supermarket in Colebrook, New Hampshire. When he returned, he provided Brittany with another firearm, a 9mm. He told her to use it for protection against wild animals, as he informed his wife he'd soon be leaving. Armando was allegedly reluctant to give her this other gun. He asked Brittany if she was going to shoot him in the back once he turned around. Her husband then provided her with a list of tasks, one of which included digging an additional shallow grave that she could dispose of Jonathan Amaral's body in. The plan was to leave Brittany back at the camp so she could destroy the evidence while Armando covered their tracks back at home. But before he left on Monday, September 21st, 2020, he ordered Brittany back into the jeep that morning. There they drove the short distance to Errol, which was the closest area with cell phone service. Armando turned on to Brittany's phone and made her call Teleflex to inform them that she was quitting her job. She was also ordered to respond to Snapchats, text messages from friends, and to make a few additional calls, in order to reassure loved ones that she was in fact safe. Brittany was then ordered to throw pieces of Jonathan's cell phone, which had been previously smashed on a rock, out the window and onto the highway as they drove. After the drive, Armando dropped Brittany back off at their campsite, reiterating that Jonathan's body had better be gone before he returned on Friday, or that there would be hell to pay. While she was left in the woods to fend for herself, Brittany began to carry out Armando's orders. Soon she dug a hole for Jonathan's body and then wrapped him in a moving blanket and in the tarp Armando had left her. Brittany then dragged Jonathan into the woods and tried to bury the body in the hours that followed, but soon found the hole she had dug was not deep enough. She then made several punctures in the tarp with a knife, hoping that the body might sink in the shallow stream where the victim was inevitably found. Once Tuesday came around, Brittany had been disrupted by fish and game officers after emerging from the woods. And that's precisely where her story ends as it pertains to the interrogation. Meanwhile, at this juncture, her husband and the alleged murderer was still out there. However, at one point during Brittany's questioning, law enforcement was able to get a hold of him on the phone. A detective sent Armando a text message, identifying himself as law enforcement. Armando didn't answer, but eventually called the detective back from a different phone number. The nature of their conversation began with the detective explaining to Armando that they were still looking for his wife and that they needed his help. He asked him to come in for an interview, but Armando immediately became defensive. He declined, but only after asking what the big deal was. Armando began to ramble, stating that he'd been fired and quit from multiple jobs before and that no one came looking for him. Unbeknownst to Armando... His wife had already been found and had told police everything. Authorities expressed to the man over the phone that they simply needed to ensure that his wife was okay. When they asked him why he wouldn't come down to the station in Jaffrey, his reasoning was that he had plans to go camping in Errol. The detective insisted that this wasn't a problem and told Armando he'd meet him halfway. Again, Armando said no. He went on to say that he didn't want his daughter, who was with him at the time, to see him speaking to police. After learning that this alleged murder suspect was currently driving around with a nine-year-old, a sense of urgency was kicked up a notch. Authorities had to be careful while still acting fast. If what his wife Brittany had just told them were true, there's no telling what Armando Barone was capable of. Eventually, they do get him to agree to drive to Jaffrey but he said it would take a while for him to get there. The arrangement was made and the detective hung up the phone. They had a feeling Armando wasn't going to just walk into the police station on his own free will, and they were right. Luckily, authorities had already been tracking Armando's cell phone. They could see that he was moving in the complete opposite direction of where he just told police he would meet them. He was actually driving through the town of Franconia and was headed north just moments after getting off the phone. Investigators then put out a bolo alert for his 2008 Jeep Patriot. Later on that evening, on Tuesday, September 22nd, at approximately 10.50 p.m., police found his vehicle abandoned in a parking lot in Jaffrey. The doors were left unlocked, and there was still mud caked beneath each wheel well and tire, as well as the side panels and bumper. Investigators also noticed blood on the driver's side door, and also on the back middle seat. Armando had evidently switched vehicles, and his cell phone was still moving north. At 4 a.m. on Wednesday, September 23rd, authorities executed a search warrant at 63 Main Street in Jaffrey at Armando and Brittany's house. When they knocked on the door to execute the warrant, Armando's mother exited out through her side of the house. A pair of blue Nike Cortez shoes were found there on the front doorsteps. From their visit, authorities learned that Armando's stepfather's Toyota Tundra truck was also missing from the driveway. They believed Armando Barone might be traveling north in that vehicle, so another BOLO alert was then released for the gold 2008 Toyota Tundra. Using his current location from his cell phone's GPS data, as well as the new vehicle description, Armando was eventually spotted just outside of Errol, New Hampshire, He was pulled over by a state trooper with his nine-year-old daughter in tow in the passenger seat. According to the affidavit, Armando allegedly said the following to the officer. So she finally called you guys, huh? Upon exiting the vehicle, police noticed that Armando had visible scratches and dried blood on his right wrist. There was also dried blood on his left leg. After being read his Miranda rights, Armando Barone was then arrested for domestic assault, thankfully without further incident. He was then transported to the state police barracks in Twin Mountain, New Hampshire, while his nine-year-old daughter was taken into the protective custody of child services. Turn turned out a breaking news from overnight. The attorney general's office says two people have been arrested in connection with the murder of a man from Keene, who was reported missing earlier this week. Surprisingly, Brittany Barone wasn't actually arrested until September 24th, the day after her husband Armando was. While she was caught first at the campsite days earlier, she had been cooperating with police. She'd taken them to various locations, including the highway spot where Jonathan's phone was thrown out the window. Brittany was released temporarily after her initial interview with authorities, though her freedom wouldn't last long. On Friday, September 25th, she was arraigned, and due to COVID-19 protocols, Brittany made her first court appearance via Zoom. She could be seen on webcam with two black eyes, she was facing three charges of falsifying physical evidence. Mrs. Barone would plead not guilty to all three counts. During the hearing, her defense attorney and the state prosecutor argued as to whether or not Brittany Barone should be released on electronic monitoring, or if she should remain behind bars until an eventual trial. She could have called authorities. She could have pulled into authorities. She could have flagged somebody
0: down in the road. There's, there's numerous opportunities. When she was in the woods, she had firearms to defend herself she took no action to defend herself, to alert authorities, or to help the situation at all. Based upon all of that and the totality of the circumstances, by clear and
2: convincing evidence, she is a threat to the public if she is released, Your Honor.
3: Yeah, can I just make one new point? I don't want to take up your time here, but see, there's not an obligation to report a crime. And there's certainly not an obligation to report it when you've been threatened with death and beaten. She had no, I mean, she's just simply not obligated. I mean, I know the state wishes she had done that but she was not obligated to do that and frankly her fear is totally understandable
2: ultimately the judge would side with the state and Brittany barone was ordered to be held without bail her husband armando appeared virtually that same day as well he was charged with 13 crimes in total the two major ones being a kidnapping and first degree capital murder Perhaps it goes without saying, but Armando Barone would also be held without bail. The tight-knit community of Keene, New Hampshire was turned completely upside down after the details surrounding Jonathan Amaralt's murder were released. In a place where very little crime happens in general, a homicide of this magnitude was simply unheard of. Jonathan was an only child a young, upstanding citizen, a man who was excited about his future, but was stripped of all his time ahead when he was lured into the forest, tortured, and subsequently killed. The mountain of evidence implicating both defendants in this case was immeasurable, but it would ultimately be up to a judge and jury to decide a suitable sentence for each party individually. Brittany and Armando Barone were to be tried separately, Brittany's day in court came first, when in August of 2021, to her benefit, she decided to take a deal and agreed to plead guilty to all three charges of falsifying physical evidence. The agreement included her full cooperation and eventual testimony against her husband, Armando, at his trial, which was still to be held at a later date. In October of 2021, Brittany received her sentence. Before the ruling was imposed, she had the opportunity to speak to the victim's family at the hearing.
1: As a mother, I know in my heart that justice will never be served. No amount of prison time or life sentences will take the pain away or undo the past.
2: In the end, Brittany Barone was ordered to spend between three and a half to seven years in prison, with two years of that sentence suspended. She was granted 377 days for time served and was ordered to pay restitution to the family, an amount that has yet to be disclosed. Roughly six months later, in April of 2022, Brittany Barone met before a parole board. A statement was read on behalf of the victim's family, and they requested Brittany Barone not be released until after she testified at her husband's trial. They feared Brittany might flee and inevitably hinder the prosecution's case, against the man now charged with Jonathan Amaral's murder. To the family's dissatisfaction, their request was denied, and Brittany Barone was released on parole in the spring of 2022. After previously entering a plea of not guilty on all counts, Armando Barone would finally see his day in court just one month later in May of 2022. But before opening arguments could even begin, the defendant shockingly chose to plead guilty, but only to two counts of assault and two counts of domestic violence. The jury was taken by bus to the park in Ringe, New Hampshire to view the exact spot where Jonathan Amerald was tortured and shot to death. Cell phone records were presented as well as the plethora of physical evidence, including the murder weapon. Armando Baron's fingerprints were found on the spoiler of Jonathan's Subaru, and the blue Nike Cortez shoes were introduced and matched the exact impressions left on Jonathan's face after he was stomped repeatedly. At the time of Armando's arrest, even more evidence had been discovered. In the back of the Toyota the defendant was driving, police found loose fertilizer, along with three bags of quick-drying concrete, two 40-pound bags of topsoil, a shovel, five feet of metal framing, and a blue tarp. Armando Barone had been caught on camera shopping at a local Home Depot in Keene, New Hampshire on September 22nd at approximately 5.11 p.m. as well. The defendant had along his nine-year-old daughter while purchasing these items. In addition, Armando Barone's Jeep Patriot was also captured on CCTV following Brittany in Jonathan's Subaru just moments after the murder. All of this and more was extremely damning for the defense, but perhaps the most powerful piece of evidence in Armando Barone's trial would undoubtedly prove to be his wife's testimony against him. On May 18, 2022, Brittany took the stand and faced her husband in court for the very first time. Here, she made the profound request that she not be referred to as Mrs. Barone. Instead, she asked the court to identify her using her maiden name, Mitchell. Before opening herself up to cross-examination, the prosecution asked their key witness about the relationship between her and Jonathan Amaral. and Brittany revealed just how, one week before he was murdered, she had told her husband that their marriage was through. I told
0: him that I wasn't in love with him anymore, and uh, I thought that we were really good parents together, and that uh, we we did a great job with that. But like, as far as romantic wise was concerned, like I just wasn't it wasn't working, and I told him that I wanted a divorce.
2: His apparent reaction would represent a terrifying foreshadowing of events to come.
0: He strangled me. Uh, I lost consciousness. And then when I came back, I started saying, oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to die.
2: And he slapped me. After hitting Brittany across the face, he said something to the effect of, I'm going to slap some sense into you. Armando eventually let go of his wife's throat and asked her if she was going to move out. Brittany proposed that the two remain civil for the sake of their children suggesting they stay under one roof and co-parent while still remaining friends. Little did she know that this would be a dangerous mistake, and that in the days to come, someone would inevitably be killed. While Brittany was out on the stand, the state went on to ask her about the romantic aspect of her and Jonathan Ameralt's relationship, specifically in the days preceding his murder. Brittany told the court she'd only just recently met Jonathan at work, as she worked there as a machine operator and Jonathan had took his job very seriously, but eventually opened up to her. Brittany said that it wasn't long before she realized how much she enjoyed John's company and personality.
0: He was very kind, he was very sweet, he was really funny. And like, he didn't show that on the floor because he was in professional mode, but he was really funny.
2: After telling her husband that she wanted a divorce, she and Jonathan began speaking more and more, first at work, then on Facebook, and eventually on Snapchat. Just days before the murder, on Wednesday, September 16th, Jonathan and Brittany met for the first time outside of their respective jobs. They drove to a park after business hours, where they discussed work and hung out while sharing a few laughs. Jonathan told her that he was interested in Brittany romantically. She told him that she wasn't looking for anything serious, explaining that she had three children and had just informed her husband of several years that she was planning to leave him. Brittany admitted all of this to John. She was upfront. However, she did tell him that she was interested in getting to know him more as well. On the stand, Brittany said there may have been potential for a future relationship, just not at that particular time. The only reason the two were able to meet in public without Armando knowing was because Brittany told her husband she was working overtime that day. The pair took Jonathan's Subaru to the park, leaving Brittany's behind at work just in case her jealous husband decided to show up at her job. This way, it would at least appear that Brittany was inside the Teleflex building, still working. She knew that Armando was capable of violence by this point. Therefore, playing musical cars was a necessary precaution. But as we know, it wouldn't be nearly enough. When the two arrived back at Teleflex later on that night, Brittany made a move. She kissed John before getting out of his car.
0: And I said, I'm going to kiss you right now. And he leaned forward and I like literally gave him a peck. And then I was like so embarrassed. I was like, I don't know what I just
2: did. Three days later, Jonathan would be killed and Brittany would almost lose her life as well. They continued to text and Snapchat right up until that day. On September 18th, roughly 24 hours before Jonathan was murdered, he and Brittany kissed for the very last time in the parking lot. They were on their lunch break. Brittany says these isolated events were the extent of their romantic interactions. Tragically, the following night, Armando would find their phone conversations, put a gun into his wife's mouth, and subsequently lure Jonathan to the very park where he'd live his final moments. One of the very last things Brittany would confess to the court was that when Armando was driving her to the park on the way to kill Jonathan, he asked if she had slept with him. She told him no and said that she'd only kissed him. When Armando asked how many times, she told him just once. Not long after, when Jonathan was lying on the ground being kicked mercilessly by his attacker, Armando asked him the very same question. Jonathan's response was different from Brittany's, however. Jonathan, told the truth. He told Armando that he'd kissed his wife not once, but twice. The defense in this case tried relentlessly to point the finger of blame at Brittany, claiming that their client Armando Barone was innocent, that this was simply a big misunderstanding, and that it was really Brittany who was the mastermind behind the entire plot and who ultimately pulled the trigger.
1: The wrong person is on trial for the murder of Jonathan Amaral. Brittany and Brittany alone stood on Jonathan Amaral's neck, slashed his wrists, and ultimately shot him multiple times, resulting in his death.
2: Seems reasonable, but there was one pesky detail which made the entire plot that much more unlikely. Brittany Barone, had been beaten beyond recognition. Armando's lawyers continued criticizing Brittany's actions the day of the murder. They spoke of all the opportunities she had to escape, when Armando got gas, when he entered the general store, when he went to the supermarket, and when Brittany was left alone at the camp. They even highlighted her opportunity to escape once and for all when both the hunters and fish and game wildlife officers approached her. Why didn't she just ask for help when she had the chance? Well, for the prosecution, the answer was crystal clear. Their rebuttal was that Brittany was obviously in imminent danger. She was under extreme duress and was convinced that she would meet the same fate as Jonathan if she didn't do exactly what her husband Armando had ordered. According to the jury, they agreed, and the defense's argument fell somewhere between desperate, outlandish, and downright insulting. After a two-week trial, the verdict was in, and on May 26, 2022, 32-year-old Armando Barone was officially found guilty. The following day, Armando Barone would be sentenced, but not before Jonathan Amaralt's family had a chance to address their son's killer face-to-face in court.
1: This verminous, conniving, murdering, beast, is lower than the excrement of filth. A creature not even worthy of a glance from me. A creature who lived like a leech, living in his mama's house, using his mama's telephone, his mama's husband's cars, living off his wife's job. And just look at him now, after committing a horrific murder, uttering not a word, to defend himself. He leeches off the state of New Hampshire using two more women and trying to put the blame on his wife. These are not the actions of a man. These are the actions of a coward. My son Jonathan was a thousand times more of a man than this lowlife could ever even dream of being. Jonathan did not deserve to die and he certainly didn't deserve to die in the company of this evil, hideous, demented creature.
2: Armando Barone didn't have a job. He didn't pay his own cell phone bill. He didn't even own a debit card. Brittany Barone and his mother supported him and their three children. The Jeep Patriot wasn't even his. It was his stepfather's. Now that you have some context of what exactly Jonathan's mother meant by using the word leech, Jonathan's father would have his say next he was sure to remind his son's killer just how worthless a man he truly was and that he wouldn't be going anywhere anytime soon.
3: I see you ain't wearing a suit today. It's official. You are a murderer, a butcher, a leech. In other words, I won't use with respect to the court today. You had to ambush and attack John with knives, machete, guns to take him down. A white feeder. Disgusting, despicable. You mentioned to John... You have a revolver called the judge. Now we have another judge here today who will decide your miserable future. I saw that you bought fast-setting concrete also, mix, and never got to use it. But don't worry, where you're going, you will be surrounded by plenty of concrete to bang your head against in frustration with being caught. You are not 40 years old, 50 or 60, but only 30 years old. You have a long, long time to fade away and rot right in prison.
2: Before the judge handed down her official ruling, she too expressed the senselessness of these crimes and what a terrible loss the state of New Hampshire and particularly the Amerald family had suffered as a result.
1: The depravity of your actions in single-handedly causing the immense suffering and the death of Jonathan Amerald show an extreme indifference to the value of human life. Your actions were brutal. They were absolutely horrific. They were selfish, and they were completely senseless. The abject cruelty, the pain and suffering, and all that you inflicted on Jonathan that night is unfathomable. As his parents just said, he did not deserve to die in that manner. One of the hardest parts of my job is often sentencing in cases and finding the appropriate balance to strike uh, in imposing a fair sentence. However, I have absolutely no hesitation or reservation in imposing the sentences that I'm about to impose on you.
2: In the end, Armando Barone would receive life in prison without the possibility of parole. He was also given an additional 45 years for his conviction on the charges of kidnapping, solicitation of murder, second-degree assault, and solicitation of first-degree assault. All of the charges pertaining to his victim, Jonathan Amaral. But a couple of months later that July, Mr. Barone would face even more prison time with respect to the repeated assault of his wife, Brittany. He was given another 10.5 to 23 years to run concurrently with the life sentence on four counts of domestic assault. And just to top it off, Mr. Armando Manbun Barone, who tried to pin this heinous murder on his battered wife, was ordered to pay approximately $13,296 in restitution to Jonathan's family. Suddenly, the man without the job, without the car, and without the means to support even himself, the perpetual abusive leech, now stands to earn somewhere between $1 and $4 per day working a prison industry job for the New Hampshire Department of Corrections for the rest of his natural life. A rate which, if working full-time, would permit Armando Barone to fulfill his restitution obligations to Jonathan Amaral's family sometime in the next 12 to 51 years. That ought to give him something to think about for a while. I got that
0: to black so if it's just my heart to break